Let us pray. Father, we believe all holy scriptures have been written for our learning. And so we pray now by your Holy Spirit that you would so help us to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Today's verse, verse 6, it's on the front of your bulletins, is of all the audacious, outlandish statements that Jesus makes, this is perhaps the most jarring for our culture, the most offensive, the most scandalizing verse, I think, in almost all of Scripture. I mean, surely all the things that he said about himself have been audacious and scandalizing. As in walking through this series of the I am statements, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door to the sheep and the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And next week, I am the true vine. They're all outrageous. Jesus is always humble, but never modest. And yet this statement is the most jarring of all within our culture. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we were in Victoria this last week. I was able to do some guest preaching and do some church consulting. But while we were there, we also got to do some college tours for our third oldest daughter um, at the University of Victoria and the University of British Columbia, both the schools that uh, Monica and I went to. And you may say to yourselves, wow, we've got the eldest child at a Canadian college. We've got the second oldest child at a Canadian college. The third oldest child is preparing to go to a Canadian college. It seems you can get the Canadians out of Canada, but can you get the Canada out of the Canadians? That's yet to be determined. But it was interesting as we drove around the campus going by the old theater building where I studied. Now, thanks be to God, none of my children are studying theater. We've got enough drama queens in our house. Um, But it reminded me of my first week at that college. I was the only professing Christian in the entire theater program. There might have been some other quiet Christians. I was the only one professing. And that first week, one of my friends came up to me, one of my new friends, and he was very spiritual. And so he said, oh, you're spiritual too. And and I said, yes. And I thought maybe he was another Christian. He said, I'm Baha'i. And I said, what is that? I was a brand new Christian for the most part. And he said, well, we are, it's an Iranian-based faith that he said, we include everybody. We don't exclude anybody. In, In our faith, you pick your favorite prophet of any religion and we work it together. And there's this one great prophet, Baha'u'llah, they say, who is sort of the senior prophet of all prophets. But if you like Jesus, 
go with Jesus. If you like Buddha, go with Buddha. You know, Hinduism, the rest, you can just sort of pick it together. And he said, we don't exclude anybody. Isn't that great? Now, I was a new Christian, but I knew a few things about the Bible. And I said, I don't know if it is that great. And I said, for example, what if I was to tell you that I believe that Jesus, who you consider just to be a prophet, what if I said to you, these words from John 14, 6, is the way, the truth, the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And he said, oh, we can't have that. And I said, oh, I thought you don't exclude anybody. And he said, he was a bit confused. And I said, well, for example, what if I said to you that maybe in these other religions, there will be some bits of truth. I mean, all truth is God's truth that can be found there. But if I was to say the only embodiment of pure total truth is Jesus of Nazareth. He said, we, we, we can't have that. And I said, again, you're excluding me. And I could tell I was sort of rocking his worldview. And I remember saying to him, why don't we both acknowledge the fact that our faith claims are actually quite exclusive. Yours is as exclusive as mine. The biggest question is, which one of these will stand up under scrutiny? Which of these will stand up as we assess it over a life and over time? See, I believe to the core of my being that John 14, 6, those words in the front cover of your bulletin, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. I believe these words are true. But the question we need to ask is, why can we say they're true? Is it just blind faith? No, it's not just blind faith. It is a reasonable faith. For I would argue this, we can say that these are true, right looking at the text itself, as we consider the problem at the heart of this text, the problem of how does a person have any kind of relationship with God? If there is a God, how do we have a relationship with him? That's the problem behind the text. But not only do we consider the problem, but we also need to consider the person that stands at the center of this text. Jesus is pointing to himself. He's saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we consider the problem and we consider the person, we also have the opportunity to consider, yes, the proof of this text. And what I mean by that is to look not just at the early church, but generation after generation after generation of individuals in every different culture, in every different socioeconomic category, in every different circumstance, have heard these words in this invitation and found life in these words and have had their lives transformed. There is proof, yes, proof to the truth of this statement. See, first we need to unpack the fact that there's a problem here that you and I, if we're honest about ourselves, will agree with, we'll agree with the problem. We will honestly consider the problem and say, yeah, that's, that's the problem, right? The problem is how do we relate to God. If there is a God, how do we relate to God? Verse six begins with those words, no one comes to the Father. Now, I would suggest that we should stop and put a little period or at least a semicolon there. Now, the nice thing about Greek is if you study Koine Greek in the, in the New Testament, there's no real punctuation. So you can kind of put punctuation wherever you want. That's not really true, but for this purposes, we'll just say that today. So just look at the first part of the phrase. Don't look at the except through me. We'll get there in a second. That's, that's point number two. But the first thing we need to look at is no one comes to the Father. End stop. Right there. No one comes to the Father. That what Jesus is declaring over us is that on our own, we will never as human beings merit or earn or make ourselves 
blameless enough and holy enough to stand before the living God. That left to our own devices, not a single person, no, not one, will be able to come to the Father. It's just an absolute blocked way. Scripture tells us again and again that there's a great chasm, a great divide ever since Genesis 3 between a holy and loving God and an unholy and so often unloving humanity. And that divide cannot be bridged by our own actions because we're sinners, because we're broken. And I know we don't like talking about sin. We like to say, well, you know, you know, do we, are we really that sinful? Or is, that, is that why I came to church here today to hear about sin, pastor? Well, I hope you came to hear about sin because we're going to talk about it every single week. We're going to confess our sins. And the truth is we can easily fall into this lie at times that things are not as bad as they are, that the problem's really not as bad as scripture would tell us. Things are mostly okay. They're not okay at all. The problem is real and the problem is me. The problem is you. Someone after the second service handed me a little piece of paper. She said, you could put this on your bathroom mirror. And you put it on the mirror and it says, you are looking at the problem. And I was like, wow, that's actually pretty good. It's pretty scriptural. You're looking at the problem. And there's moments when we can delude ourselves and think that maybe I'm not as sinful, I'm not as broken. And then we have these wonderful reminders that the Lord gives us of just how much of the problem we are. I just about punched someone yesterday. I'm not, I'm not proud to admit it, but I honestly almost punched a man yesterday. Now there's background. It's not an excuse, but there's a background here. We were boarding an airplane in Vancouver to come home. And as many of you know, Monica fell and shattered her leg almost eight months ago and has been a walking miracle. I mean, she is walking unassisted. I mean, she has her cane when she needs it, but I mean, she's an absolute miracle. Physical therapy twice a week. Um, But as we're boarding the aircraft, we realized for the first time ever since we had little tiny children, we could be part of the pre-boarding, right? You know, those who need extra assistance getting on the plane. So we're lining up to get into the pre-board and, and off goes a little family with some infants. And then we're next. And I made sure I put Monica for, I'm like, make sure you really show them. Like, let's put a <laughs> display on here, you know? And uh, she's like, I'm actually walking pretty good. I'm like, no, lean on the cane, lean on the cane. And, and, but as we're walking by, this guy who's standing there in the zone one, you know, ready to get on next, out loud says, this is ridiculous. I paid more money than they did so I can get on the plane first. I thought, Tourette's much? What are you, like, seriously, you said that out loud? And I looked at him and I said, are you serious? And he said, well, you know, I said, I, I pointed to my wife getting on the plane with her cane. I said, are you serious? And the flight attendant was wonderful. She took the matter into hand, knowing that I was about to lose my mind and, and said, sir, is, is, he, is he bothering you? And I said, he sure is bothering me. She said, I will handle him. And so I said, fine. And I got on the plane. Crisis kind of averted. And I sat down on the plane and I watched for him. I thought, where is he going to go? Is he going to sit next to me? We're going to have some robust evangelism on this flight. But you know, about 10 minutes through the boarding process, I realized something and it was embarrassing and it brought me to a place of deep personal repentance. Yes, this man had been awful and said some terrible things and yet here I was brooding in anger 
and arrogance and fury, thinking all kinds of evil thoughts about this man. And I heard these words from Jesus saying, I say to you, do not be angry with your brother. I'm no different than this man. I am no different. The amount of sin in his life does not add up to some greater amount than mine. And yet how easy is it for me to say, oh, I thank God I'm not like this other man. We all, as Romans 3.23 says, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know it. We know we are broken. We know that we are the problem. I think of the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer and philosopher and Soviet dissident who wrote these words. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Maybe even better, the famous story of G.K. Chesterton back in the early 30s, the Times of London was asking for an essay contest. Send in your essays to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, who had been converted to Christianity only about 10 years earlier, wrote into the London newspaper and said, what is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. And so it is for us. We can identify with the words of King David in Psalm 51 when he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We know there is a problem. We resonate with the problem. The problem is real. The problem behind John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father. is true and real. But there's a solution, and it's the person. And if we consider not just the problem behind this text, but the person, things begin to change. See, here's how the text now reads, right? If we break it in two pieces. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, suddenly God has entered into an impossible situation and made it possible. Because God has entered in personally, to deal with our problem, suddenly that barrier, that chasm can be bridged. But not bridged by us. Bridged by the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God in the flesh. As John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only begotten Son of the Father full of grace and truth. You know, as we consider the person of Jesus. This is where suddenly the truth of this verse begins to convict us. See, it's not just the reality of the problem, but it's the person who stands there saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, you look at his life and here is Jesus who lived a life like no other a one who could welcome the marginalized, who could minister to the untouchables, who could turn the other cheek, wash his disciples' feet, be beaten and even crucified. You know, it's, 
Time Magazine several years ago who said of Jesus, secular magazine, Jesus is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of the world. It's a secular magazine. Reads like a sermon, doesn't it? Jesus, the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of the world. See, what we find as we look at the life of Jesus is that his life makes sense of life. His life is radical and pure and holy, and yet it connects directly with the life you and I live, right? He entered into flesh. He lived a real human life. This is what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says when it says he was tested like us in every way, yet without sin, that he lived a full life. He knows what it is to live the life you're living. Have you been hungry? So is he. Have you been lonely? So is he. Have you been betrayed? So is he. Have you been beaten and in pain and dying? So has he. He enters completely into our life. And you know, one of the reasons I love being Anglican is we get to actually shape our year around the life of Jesus. This is what the liturgical calendar does for us is we actually walk through the key events of Jesus' life through the year, right? We begin in Advent just in a couple months from now. Advent begins this season of waiting, waiting, preparing for Christmas, for the nativity, for the coming of the Messiah. We, we then come to Christmas and the, the Messiah is born. Jesus comes into the world, right? He enters into our flesh. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. And then light has dawned for to us, a son is born, a child is given, right? We come then to epiphany, which is both the baptism of Jesus and also the coming of the Magi. This Jesus born as the world brings brilliant pagan scientists from the other end of the world to come and seek him out and bend their knee before him. And then we come to Lent, a season where we begin to contemplate in a very intentional way just how broken we are. The reason why God had to send his son in the flesh, to be flesh for us, to take sin for us. And we come to Holy Week and walk through the kingly procession. He is the king, but what kind of king is this? Monday, Thursday, he's washing his disciples' feet. He's giving us this meal that starts talking about broken body and poured out blood and a new commandment. That's what Monday, Thursday means. Mandate, Thursday, a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And on Friday, he carries his cross. And so we carry our cross with him through the parking lot and campus. So we come to Calvary and behold the one who bears it all for us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is finished. Forgiveness on that cross. Easter morning, the tomb has been rolled away. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sin? And then, just when we thought we'd hit the high points, you get the ascension 
And the coming of the Holy Spirit, suddenly, oh, this is how we're going to be able to love one another as Jesus loved us. It won't be us doing the work. It'll be him doing the work in us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we walk through a whole season of Pentecost or Trinity or ordinary time because Anglicans have never been able to decide what to do with those five months. But we call it whatever and we talk all about the life of Jesus and then we're back at Advent all over again and we're waiting for his second coming, the promise that he will return and bring us to him to live forever. This is the life of Jesus. We walk through each step of it each and every year again and again and again. And what happens as you contemplate and consider this person of Jesus, as you live into his life and rehearse his life year after year, you cannot help but be changed. This life as we consider it, this person's life changes our lives. I've told the story before when I was in Ottawa, the parish I was at before we came here, the very first coffee meeting I ever had with a parishioner was the first week I was there and it was a person who reached out, said, I want to have coffee with you. And so I sat down with her at Starbucks and she was a PhD student from somewhere in Scandinavia. And, uh, and she said to me, she said, I don't like your preaching. And I thought, wow, this is beginning well. Um, and uh, she says, I, I don't believe in Jesus but I'm interested in him. I can't shake Jesus. He's really interesting. Is it okay if I stick around? And I said, absolutely. I wanted to say, no, if you don't like my preaching, go away. But no, no, I said, I said no, seriously, stick around. Lean into Jesus. The last coffee appointment I had before I left Ottawa was with the same girl 10 years later. And it was me saying goodbye to come here and her saying goodbye so she could move to India to become a full-time missionary. Because she lived into the life of Jesus. She considered day after day the life of Jesus, the person behind this text, and she found to be true what generations after generations have found to be true, that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But if you don't believe that, Also consider the proof, the proof of lives that have been changed, not just that first generation of disciples, but generation after generation through 2,000 years of church history, people from every walk of life that have been transformed by this man, the proof that this verse, that this outlandish statement is true. You know, it's interesting, the context of this passage, it comes just after the Last Supper in John 13. And the last verse of chapter 13, before we get to chapter 14, is Jesus telling Peter that before the cock crows, he will deny him three times. So immediately before this moment, Jesus is contemplating coming betrayal and rejection by his disciples. And what's the next thing out of his mouth? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I thought you said they were all going to betray you and run and deny you. Don't worry. Don't be, don't be troubled. Why not be troubled? Because it was never up to you in the first place anyway. I will do my work, not in the wisest, but in the weak. Not in the strong, but in the wounded. Not in the courageous, but in the cowards. I will do my work in real people. And it's proven in the life of the early church 
And it's proven generation after generation as Jesus speaks into and grabs a hold of our lives. You know, while we were in Victoria, you know, it always happens when you're in your hometown, you know, you sort of drive around, you see old houses and old places. And we drove by the church where I first met the Lord. And I remembered something as we drove by the church that I had never until this point remembered. It it was like forgotten. I I tell my conversion story a lot. I was 17 years old. Some of you have heard it before. If not, you know, I'm not going to say it all today, but you know, Maybe I will. But the, the, the whole idea was just in, in, in 90 minutes, I went from an atheist to a Christian. And I'd been, you know, in a non-believing context. I, I did not believe the gospel whatsoever. I'd been in Catholic school most of my life. And so I'd read a lot of the gospels and I had uh, done Bible maps and stuff. So I, I knew a lot about Jesus. And in that 90 minutes that night at a youth group service that I was invited to, the Lord met me profoundly, powerfully, and I could not deny his presence. And something in me shattered and broke that night, the resistance. And suddenly I walked out that night thinking, I think Jesus is for real. I think that everything in scripture about him is probably true. And I'm the biggest moron on the planet. But here's what I remembered when we were driving by that church just this week, that I went home that night after I became a Christian. And I sat in my bedroom and I looked up at the wall and noticed that there was this sketched picture of Jesus, right? It's because my godfather had given it to me when I was baptized as a baby. It was something that had been in my room my entire life, this picture of Jesus, this non-believer who had a picture of Jesus in his room. And I sat there looking at it as a new believer for the first time seeing him as he is. There he was on the wall right next to my Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, poster. And I noticed on the bottom that there was some writing. And and I read it, it said, Ego sum via. And I thought, I think that's Latin. And so I went and found a Latin dictionary in the house. And I did my first Latin translation ever. I was preparing for seminary. And it says, I am the way. For my entire life, he'd been right in front of my face. The truth had been right there, hanging in my bedroom my entire life, looking right at me, stating the centrality of the gospel right before my eyes. And it was not until that night that I finally received it. This is what God does He takes ordinary people and transforms them with his gospel. St. Paul was a murderer. Cyprian was a magician. Augustine was a sex addict. John Newton was a slave trader. And Jesus reached into each one of their lives and said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And their lives were fundamentally transformed and so was the world around them. This is the proof that we must consider around the gospel. Friends, this is why we come to church every week. We come to church 
to be reminded of what we can so easily forget. Through word and sacrament, to be reminded of the problem, to face the problem head on and go, yeah, I know, I know the problem. I'm looking at it. But then to be reminded of the person of Jesus Christ, the one who's come into an impossible problem to solve it, bearing your sins and mine, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the proof, seeing the proof of this gospel of that. And you know what the proof, I think there's so many ways we see the proof in community, but I think it's around this rail, the communion rail. When you come, you know, I know you often do, you look across and see people, but you know, pay attention. Look, look across the rail. And as you do, you'll find yourself saying, how did that person get here? She got here too? How did he get here? Don't worry, they're looking at you the same way, right? This is the proof. The proof that God can reach into each and every one of our lives. The proof that Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.